0: Jesus, I'm thinking about the person in the room who just isn't sure that you're like for them. Yeah? Um, Circumstances and past history have collided to make it seem like you're not for them. And so even what we're pressing into today in this sermon it it can feel like um, you're not for us you just want stuff from us and so would you uh, lead us into your heart today father spirit would you guide us into the truth of all that you are we pray these things in jesus name amen amen go ahead and have a seat It is good to be back with you. Steph and I were in Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plains, uh, last week for a wedding. Those of you who remember Aaron, Jesse, Aaron was part of our spiritual family for a couple years, lived with us, lived with Steph and I for a couple of years, and he has married a lovely woman named Susie, and I was thinking all throughout that wedding of um, the Sunday that he left us, how we like prayed for him and commissioned him and prayed for a really beautiful godly wife for him, and uh, he found her. And so we're we're really, it was a good time. Susie is from the same 25,000-person town that Steph's aunt and uncle have lived in for like 30 years. So actually, it turned into a family reunion. Steph's parents drove down. It was a good time. So um, yeah, it's really, really good to be back and really just celebrating God's faithfulness as he leads us. We're gonna be in Leviticus 23 today, Leviticus 23. And I remember when I was growing up, my parents invited friends of theirs to church one Sunday. And those friends of ours uh, had been part of a church at one season of their life and hadn't really been back. And so my parents invited them and they come that Sunday and the pastor is preaching on money. He's preaching on uh, a passage, I think out of the Psalms, that says, the earth is the Lord's and everything therein. And basically, the point of the sermon was, your money isn't yours. And uh, the husband of this couple couldn't have been more offended, uh, couldn't have been more outraged, that all of the hard-earned money that he had uh, cultivated for himself belonged to somebody else. And he said, well, I'm never doing that again. Ironically, they came to church, again, I think once with us, and uh, this was a few years later, and the pastor, a different pastor, opened at a different church, opened the Bible and started preaching, and he was preaching on money. And it makes you wonder if the Lord was trying to get that guy's attention, you know what I mean? And uh, But the problem with talking about money is that it's just so personal, right? Like our parents teach us that there's three things that we don't talk about, you know, politics, religion, and money. We don't, we don't talk about money publicly. And then, when it gets kind of mixed in with religion, it's very often manipulative and shaming. And uh, in fact, really talking about money in church feels like talking about Bruno. Like we just don't do it, <laughs> right? And and so, as we come to the text this morning, I'm excited to open up uh, the scriptures and really a fresh part of scripture that speaks to our finances. And the reason I really like teaching on finances is it's the gateway to everything else. Teaching on money is the gateway to everything else, right? Because it's the gateway to control, it's the gateway to fear, it's the gateway to pride, it's the gateway to all of the things, which is why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, show me where you spend your money and I will show you what you really value, and so in Leviticus 23, of all places, we see an invitation from the Lord to kind of move out of this posture of obligation when it comes to our money as it relates to God and to move, toward from, move out of obligation into, of all things, celebration. And that's where we're going to be this morning in Leviticus 23. But before we get to the specific passage, I just kind of want to remind us of where we are and unpack a little bit further this series that we're doing on the spiritual discipline of celebration. Kristen preached an excellent sermon on the Passover last week. I have never heard the Passover explained so thoroughly and so clearly and in such a Christ-centered way. I was really proud of her and I want to build on that foundation and just get into the heart of what's going on here. So at the end of the book of Genesis, the descendants of Abraham find themselves in Egypt. They escape a famine in their homeland and they get to Egypt and 400 years go by and then the beginning of the book of Exodus comes. And the Israelites living in Egypt have grown in such numbers that the current king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, views them as a threat to national security. And so he enslaves them. He enslaves an entire population of people. The people of God, the Israelites, they call out to God for deliverance. He hears from heaven, he raises up Moses, and through Moses, God delivers his people. They escape slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. This, by the way, is all what the Passover is a reminder of. They're led to Mount Sinai, where God invites them into a relationship with himself. The stipulations of that covenantal relationship, what it's going to look like, for, for, for that relationship to exist, when I was in college, we don't, kids don't do this anymore, uh, but we had these things called DTRs, define the relationship, right? You'd hang out with a girl for a little while, we were friends, what are we, and eventually this was a Bible college thing, I think, um, as was not drinking and just not experiencing most of the things that all of you experienced in your college years. I, um, the DTR was, okay, what are we? The book of Leviticus is a DTR, The book of Leviticus is the stipulations of the covenant. The book of Leviticus outlines how a people who love death can live in the presence of the author of life. The book of Leviticus is sunscreen for an unholy people to stand before a holy God, right? And if you've ever set out to read the Bible cover to cover, which, by the way, you should not do. The Bible isn't that. The Bible's a library, okay? Like, reading the Bible cover to cover is like going into the library, starting at the first shelf, and just working your way through. Like, it's just going to get confusing. You should start in John, you should start in the Gospels, then kind of work your way back. If you've ever read the Bible cover to cover, though, you brave souls, uh, you likely got to the book of Leviticus and got frustrated even maybe a little confused, maybe a little bored, because the Bible is weird, y'all. The Bible is weird. And few books are as strange as Leviticus because it outlines in grueling and even sometimes gruesome detail what it looks like for us to live in the presence of God. And Leviticus gets a bad rap because of its boredom. But again, it's, it's articulating that message of how God's people who have been called in relationship with him, who are so sinful and so broken and love death, how can they live in relationship with him? The, the biggest refrain in the earliest parts of the book of Leviticus, that they will be forgiven, that they will be forgiven, that they will be forgiven, that they will be forgiven. Leviticus is a jam, y'all, right? It's just like kind of like a jam in the way gone with the wind is a jam. Like you just really kind of have to settle in, right? And in the midst of this uh, book that is filled with all strange, sorts of strange stipulations, don't plant two different crops next to each other. Don't wear a garment of two different fibers. Do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Wrote a paper on that once. Still, still don't know what it means. Um, in the middle of this is a surprising command, and it's a command to celebrate. So look with me at Leviticus 23 verses 1 through 4. Yahweh said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. Verse three, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. It is Yahweh's Sabbath day and it must be observed wherever you live. Verse four, in addition to the Sabbath, these are the Lord's appointed festivals, the official days for holy assembly that are to be celebrated at their proper times each year. The Lord gives Israel, the Lord gives his people holy assemblies, festivals, celebrations. And the first of those holy assemblies, the first of those appointed festivals is a weekly festival like, who are these people? Do they ever work? They, they get one day off a week. There's a celebration on their calendar, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday every week. Now, a party once a week is kind of the behavior you would expect of like an undergrad at like the Ohio University, right? Um, like a 24-hour nonstop rager, right? But what's interesting, um, is that this weekly festival is not one of debauchery. It's not one of licentiousness. It's not about trifling or illicit pleasures. It's about rest. Now, I want you to get yourself into the minds of the Hebrews who find themselves on the foot of Mount Sinai after 400 years of grueling, backbreaking slavery. God just said to people that have worked for seven days night and day, as long as anybody can remember, he just said to them, one day a week, you're not going to work. That is radically good news. That is radically good news. And while the Sabbath, let's fast forward to us, Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the law, we're in a new arrangement, a new covenant with him. While it is no longer a command for us, it remains an abiding gift for God's people, the Sabbath. For us, As members of the New Covenant, it is not a have-to Sabbath, otherwise we get stoned. Instead, it's a we get to Sabbath. We serve a God who is radically committed to our flourishing and well-being. One of the things that Steph and I have noticed is how so many millennials and Gen Zs will tell us that they need to take a break from something for their mental health. And my response, they they need a mental health break. And our response to that is, well, actually, God built in a mental health break to your life. It's called the Sabbath. Right? The problem is, too few of us slow down long enough to receive this gift. Meanwhile, John Mark Comer says, every tradition has its core practices. If you're Catholic, it's daily mass. If you're evangelical, it's your morning quiet time. He says, I have just come to believe that Sabbath is not the, but it is a core practice from the way of Jesus. And that it is essential to following Jesus well. So the first festival they are commanded to celebrate is a Sabbath, a weekly festival. And then in addition, in Leviticus 23, there are seven other festivals, our holy days, that Israel is called to celebrate. Let's just hold the number seven in our minds for later. These appointed times... These festivals are called Moed in the Hebrew that is what the Old Testament was written in. And the first time the word Moed appears is in Genesis 1.14. It's when God puts the, st- the moon and the sun in the sky, the lights in the sky, to mark out the Moed, the appointed seasons, right? As we get to the book of Leviticus, these Moed, the, these, these appointed seasons, these appointed festivals come to mean a special time to meet with God. Please don't miss this, okay? God tells the people who have been enslaved for generations that a vital part of connecting with him will be celebration. God invites his people into celebration and into festivals and to parties once a week and then seven times a year parties as a vital pathway of connecting with him. And nothing could be further than how we think of connecting with God. Christianity is serious business. We are, after all, saying that Jesus of Nazareth, a human being, is also God. We're saying that he is the authority on Money on sex on power on time. We're saying that he died in Rosedanda. It's a very serious business. But as Teresa of Avila says, too many of us are gloomy saints. We're far better at at frowning. I mean, I remember working at Panera out on Sunday afternoons in high school. Not exactly a celebratory time. Let me tell you. Maybe their pastor just preached on money, I don't know. But when God calls his people to holiness in the book of Leviticus, when he gives them sunscreen for living with him, this holy God, he invites them to celebrate. And by the way, that's the kind of life that Jesus lives. Jesus sucked the marrow out of all that life had. Jesus, one author said that I can't find anywhere where I read this, He lived life from his bones. And then he comes to us and says, I'm here to offer you life and life to the full. He says, I'm here to give you joy that overflows. Fullness of joy. And that's what the Feasts of Leviticus are all about. Life and life abundant. Fullness of joy. And you even see that in how they're scheduled. There's a weekly festival, the Sabbath, every seven days. Then there are seven more festivals on some iteration of seven on their calendar. The seventh day of the week, seven times seven weeks. That's the Feast of Weeks, uh, Pentecost. First day of the seventh month. 10th day of the seventh month the 15th through 21st of the seventh month in leviticus 25 we find that every seventh year was to be a sabbath year of rest for the land and every seven times seventh year the 50th year was to be a year of jubilee the number seven is a number of fullness and completion and what the lord is trying to articulate here in leviticus 23 is on the table on the table is fullness of joy He puts on the table, life and life abundant. And he puts it on the table, and he doesn't say, why don't you think about practicing this? He doesn't say, I have a suggestion for you, why don't you do this? Nor does he say, hey, um, I'd like you to celebrate um, seven festivals this year, let's pull out our calendars and see when that would work for you. The Lord lays out a calendar with seven festivals and the vast majority of them align with planting or harvest. In other words, they line up with what is most likely the most inconvenient time for people living in an agrarian society, for farmers. Now, while their pagan neighbors are going to work, while they are trying to get all their hired hands in line to go get the the harvest After all those months of work, God says, "I actually would like you to stop and have a party." But, but Lord, like that. It. It's ready. Now see, this inconvenience is easy for us to miss, because very few of us in this church are farmers, but I have married a girl from South Dakota from God's country. <laughs> harvesting crop is way harder than it sounds. Even now, with like modern technology and combines and GPS and pesticides, it is an incredibly complex task that requires precise timing. Because guess what? You can't harvest wheat if it's raining. Okay? And so it's not uncommon in farming communities today for us to miss huge important celebrations, huge big things on our calendars when the harvest time has come, and if it's been rainy, if, and it's going to be rainy again. So farmers skip church, and they miss family parties, and they, whiz, they run inside, need a birthday cake, and they run back out. You see, God takes parties very seriously. These parties were certainly a delight. These parties were certainly a delight, but they were also a discipline a radical trust in God, a God who, a a kind of trust expressed in taking a day, and even worse, the Feast of Booths, a whole week off of work. And depending on when the Sabbath fell in that, you might get an extra day or two. And that sounds really nice to us, but none of us are absolutely and utterly dependent on getting that crop in time so that we can get it to the markets, that we can make our money so that we can feed our families. God takes parties very seriously, interrupting people's lives whenever he wants to give them tangible reminders of his reign and rule in their lives. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. It's about creating a world and a culture for them that they can't take a step or a breath or do anything without bumping into the fact that the Lord is king. These celebrations are commanded as a lasting ordinance. They're not going anywhere. No matter where they are, in all times and places, that's why to this day Jewish people practice these celebrations. Rosh Hashanah was just a couple of days ago. While we are practicing, while we are celebrating Easter this spring, Jewish people will be celebrating the Passover. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of confusing. Kristen and I had a whole debate about when the start of the year was for Jewish people this week. So, and and this gets into some of the difficulty. Of interpreting these. Let's, Bible nerds and fivefold teachers, rejoice. Here's a point of information for you. We set out to grow our church in the spiritual discipline of celebration. And I said, I'll pre- preach on the Feasts of Israel. That should be easy, right? And the Bible, always complex, always more difficult, always inviting us deeper. And so, really, as you start to study the Feasts, you kind of run into like three broad ways. of of interpreting them and and living into them. And one is, let's look at how Jesus fulfills the meaning of and the celebration of those feasts, either in his life or ministry or kind of in something about him, right? And that's what Kristen did last week. Kristen did, okay, here's the Passover. Here's how Jesus fulfills them. He fulfills all of them. As a fun fact, I couldn't tell you which one, but as a fun fact, major events of Jesus' ministry line up with six of the seven feasts of Israel except for one there's one that Jesus kind of left untouched, and so there's a good argument to be made that when Jesus returns bodily, it will be on one of those days. So you might not be able to guess the year, but you could maybe guess maybe this day of this year, maybe. Okay, next year. Okay, next year. Um, so one way is to figure out, okay, how was it fulfilled in the life of Christ? And we're going to do that. We did that with Passover, and we're going to do that with uh, the Feast of Booths, Okay. Now, sometimes you want to look at it as how, how do Jewish people how did it come to be practiced in Jewish among among Jewish people over time, and that's what we're going to do next week with the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. We want to look at what did that feast really come to mean as Israel entered the land and they continue to practice it now. So we'll do that with that one. And then this week we're kind of just looking at what would this feast have meant to the first people that practiced it. Let's just go original context. Basically, I didn't want to choose one of the three, so I'm going to have my cake and eat it too and kind of give us a view of how these can, how these can work, and, and that's what we're going to do. I want to look at the festival of first fruits, the festival of first fruits through the lens of what it originally meant. So jump down in Leviticus 23 to verse 9. Now, my, my Bible says celebration of first harvest. Same point. Okay, this is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I am giving you, and you harvest its first crops. By the way, do you notice this is harvest, not plant? Right? Because when they enter the land and take possession of it, they, they get all of these fields that were already planted and worked by Canaanites that they kick out through violence. That's another topic. Okay, but... They don't have to even work for it. They just get to harvest it, right? When you enter the land and you're giving you and you harvest its first crops, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord. It's called a wave offering. So it may be accepted on your behalf. On that same day, you must sacrifice a one-year-old male lamb with no defects as a burnt offering to the Lord. With it, You must present a grain offering consisting of four quarts of choice flour moistened with olive oil. It will be a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You must also offer one quart of wine as a liquid offering. Essentially, bring to the Lord the first sheaf of grain and dinner. Wine, bread, and meat. Bring that. We're going to give it all to the Lord. Do not, look at verse 14. Do not eat any bread... Or roasted grain or fresh kernels on that day until you bring this offering to your God. This is a permanent law for you and it must be observed from generation to generation wherever you live. The festival of first fruits, of first harvest would have taken place right at the beginning of the harvest. You've done your work. You're ready to harvest. You're ready to go. But first, you take your sickle and you slash down just a little bundle. That's all. And, and you want to keep going but you grab that bundle, you tie it up. You grab your lamb, one-year-old, male, without blemish. You grab your flour, moisten it with olive oil. You bring the wine. You go to the tabernacle. You bring it to the Lord. Before you get to taste of the fruit of your labor. Now listen, I, I bake a lot. It's kind of my stress reliever. And there is nothing better. There's nothing better. Baking the bread, it's cooled, first slice, awesome. There's nothing better. Then I made the cookies, first one off the tray. There's none better. We, we want to enjoy the fruit of our labor. And the Lord says, before you enjoy the fruit of the labor, don't, eat, don't, eat a, don't, eat, don't make any bread out of that flour, that grain you just grew. He says, don't roast the grains, popcorn, kind of, right? He says, don't even like pop a kernel off there just to make sure it tastes good. Before you do anything, cut a little bit down, put it into a bundle, bring it to me. the festival of first fruit is a powerful symbol. It seeks to remind you that this harvest that you worked for, this harvest that has given you calluses on your hands and an ache in your back and a sunburn on your neck that has been the source of sleepless, anxious nights spent worrying about the weather and the pestilence and the disease, all of it, every grain, every stock that you planted and protected and are going to harvest, the Lord says it ultimately does not belong to you. The festival of first fruits, where you brought the first fruits of your labor to the Lord, it was a powerful symbol and a reminder that this harvest comes from the Lord's hand. And that's why the priest takes the bundle of grain, lifts it to the Lord. One scholar says, as a part of the harvest festival... The first fruits are brought to the priest. He, in turn, waves the sheaf of grain or elevates it before the altar of the Lord. This gesture physically draws God's attention to the sacrifice and signifies listen to this that all gifts and sacrificial items derive from and belong to God. It then releases the remainder of the harvest for the people's use. Before you get to taste the fruit of your labor, you give the first. And best and freshest, the first and best and freshest to the Lord, as a statement of worship and trust and allegiance and faith and submission to the Lord who made the harvest possible. And that word submission is key. Derek Tidball says, "God had God had the prior claim over all things. The freshest." and best belonged to him. Only after the first pickings of the harvest had been offered to him were the people allowed to enjoy the rest of the harvest themselves. God had prior claim over all things. The festival of first First fruits, it's a radical declaration of submission. It's how the Israelites said, despite my blood and my sweat and my tears, this doesn't belong to me. It's how the Israelites said that my labor over this harvest, over this crop, over this land does not entitle me to it. It's how they said, This comes from the Lord's hand. It's his doing. And by giving him the first fruits of the harvest, I am recognizing, listen, I am recognizing his prior claim over what I have. And so the Lord says to a group of people who have worked hard for this harvest that their harvest doesn't actually belong to them, and he commands to give to him part of what they grow. It's a command, it's not an option, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. And instead of being met with consternation or frustration or obligation, it is met with celebration. Derek Tidball says that day would have been a day of incredible celebration. And as the festival evolved throughout time, it would have become more and more elaborate with music and dancing as you were going up into the temple. And if you're a farmer or you know a farmer, or you've ever grown something for a minute, you can kind of navigate your way into the headspace of the complexity and the unpredictability of growing things. You can navigate your way into this gratefulness for a harvest because you recognize if you're a farmer that just so much is out of your control. This is an era long before pesticides long before drought-resistant crops, long before an app on your phone can predict the weather. Mostly incorrectly, but it can predict it. Even in this moment, in our cultural moment, with all of the technology and all of the things, farming is still an unbelievably complex task, which is why few people do it. It's also why there's good money in it. It's hard work. But here's, here's the thing about us, okay, here in this room, 2,000 years later, we're not exactly a church full of farmers, okay? Instead, we're a church of people that work for the most part like professional jobs, jobs that have a clear beginning and a clear end. We clock in, we clock out. Our hours are mandated, they're predictable, they're limited, but they are long. We have difficult coworkers. hold in. We have frustrating bosses and needy clients, or students, or patients, or, or, or you name it, if you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, you feel the constant weight of the people that are relying on you for their income. You feel the constant uphill battle to make sure everything is handled and done right, nobody cares as much as you. It's exhausting. We spend hours each week separated from our family and our kids and our loved ones, again, constantly like under the influence of these annoying coworkers and these frustrating bosses. We do all of this grueling toil. Our, our bodies ache from our labor. We get all anxious and are up in the night about this thing our boss said or a co-worker has said. And we do all of this. We do all of this as the theologian Donna Summers says, for the money. <laughs> we work hard for it. We put up with all of it the people, the problems, the pain, so that we can get our hands on a paycheck, take care of our bills, buy some food, make sure the grass is mowed, and if we plan right, or even if we don't, we have credit cards, we can go on a vacation or go out for dinner or buy a video game or feed our hobbies, that God would say, that paycheck is all mine. That God would say, that dividend, that Social Security income, that required minimum distribution, those 401k earnings, your portfolio, which is doing terrible right now, that God would say, none of that actually belongs to you. It all belongs to me. That God, for God to say that he has prior claim on every dollar, on every penny, it does not sound like good news. In fact, it sounds like a scandal. It sounds like tyranny, Morgan Housel, in his book, The Psychology of Money, notes that the intrinsic value of money is freedom. That's what money gets you, freedom. The more money you have, the more freedom you have, right? If I have money, this is what we do in our house. I am set free from having to mow the grass because we pay someone to mow our grass. I've been set free from that, right? The more money you have, the more free you are to travel, the more medical care you're going to have, the more the, more, the, the intrinsic value of money is freedom. It, let's just do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. And when God says that my money belongs to him, it sounds a lot like God is limiting my freedom. Could anything be more un-American? And, and wait, 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 we've not even gotten to the part where not only do you give the first part of the harvest and then other times of the harvest... But at the end of the harvest, you're supposed to leave the edges. Leave the edges untouched so that the poor and the widows can come and harvest and have something to eat. I mean, what is this? Did Bernie Sanders write the book of Leviticus? (laughs) Even if you voted for him, that's funny. (laughs) And yet the Bible has this universal message when it comes to our money And the Festival of First Fruits gets at the heart of the message. God has prior claim on all our money. God has prior claim on all your money. And that's worthy of celebration. That's cause for a party. That's not how we think of giving at all. We tend to think of giving as an obligation. This thing that we have to do. It's an obligation, not a celebration, because... God's claim on our money offends our desire to control, offends our desire to exercise autonomy over our earnings instead of submitting to his reign and rule over our finances by giving to him first. And first was the operative word. This is why this is so troubling. We want to be in control. We want freedom. God is asking for a portion of our finances, listen, off the top, at the front end. He asks for the first and the best. And it feels to us like what he's doing is limiting our control and our freedom. And so what we do to maintain our sense of freedom and control, what we do is we give to God of what is left over. After we pay our bills, after we have fun, after we go out to eat, after we go on vacation, after we do the thing to our house, we look at what's left over and then we give a portion of that. Because that leaves us feeling more in control of our finances than giving a generous, sacrificial chunk off the top at the front end. And yet the radical promise that God is making, it's an unbelievable promise. And you know why I know it's unbelievable? Because American Christians for the last hundred years have given, on average, 2% of their income the vast majority of you tip, you don't tithe. I'm just, I, I'm just telling you how it goes. You're tipping off the back end, not tithing off the front end. There's a radical promise that God is making that we don't believe, and the promise is that the pathway to freedom and control in our finances, the pathway to freedom and control in our finances, comes not through anxiously managing everything on our own terms and giving God to God at the end. Instead, the pathway to freedom and control in our finances comes when we submit to God's prior claim on our money, give the first and best to him, sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully. And that's where celebration comes in, right there. Kristen made an incredible point last week that for Christians, celebration is as often before the fact as it is after the fact. Wasn't that good? We're so used to celebrating after the fact, but actually celebration is a before the fact kind of event. And so when you give by check or online giving, you're actually engaging in a pre-celebration of the ways that God is going to provide for you as you trust in Him and give Him the first and best. Giving isn't an obligation, it's not a tax that we pay, it is not one of another line of withholdings on our pay stub. It is a celebration of God's provision before it even gets to us. The Festival of First Fruits invites us into both a practice and a posture. And the practice is this submitting to God's prior claim on our money. Here's an uncomfortable word submitting that's what you do to a command you submit to it you don't interpret it you either submit to it or you don't you either obey or you don't i mean that's what it comes i don't know how else to preach this but to at least point out at some point it is a matter of obedience it isn't either a matter of yes or no to the lord that's what it is it's about submitting to god's prior claim on our money by giving him our first and best and so we give to God off the top of our income as we prosper. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 or 2 Corinthians 15 says, that the tithe and the new covenant, here it actually gets worse. 10% is easy. In the new covenant, it becomes give as you prosper. Because for some of us, 10% is nothing. For some of us, 10% is hardly sacrificial. For others, 10% breaks the bank. Right? So as we give off the top of our income, as we prosper, we are saying that we trust that God can do more with 90% of our money or 83% of our money or 87% or 96%. God can do more with that amount of our money than I can do with 100%. Let me just say that again. When I give, I am saying that I believe God can do more with 90, 85% of my income than I can do with 100 That's the practice, and the posture is celebrating. Celebrating that the God of the universe wants me to live in financial freedom and that the way to get to financial freedom and a stressless posture about money is by giving him our first and best, trusting that he is going to take care of all of my needs that defy, my, defy explanation. Listen, this, this, is, this is just a living example. Steph and I give somewhere between 15 to 20% of our income away. So there's a structured part, an amount that we give to the church every month, and then over and above that are missionaries that we give to, parking lots that we give to, things like that. You see what I'm saying? So we give away at the end of the month about 15 to 20% of our income because other needs pop up. We want to be sensitive to those things. So we, had a, we, we have a financial guy from Thrivent. Um, Thrivent's a, kind of a Christian financial planning service. Our financial guy was actually a, was a Methodist pastor. He's a friend. Um, and so one of our first meetings, you do what you do with your financial planner and you run your numbers. And so you plug in all of your expenses and go down the list and then we give it to him. And he says, okay, guys, I'm, I'm adding this up and you're spending about 120% of what you make. Now, listen, if you were asking Kyle to do the numbers, that probably would be the case. But this is John. John is a machine, okay, And um, um, John's like, you are spending 120% of what you make, so let's talk about your debt. We said, well, we don't have any. He said, of course you have debt. I said, no, we, we use credit cards, we pay them off at the end of every month. You know, as far as I can tell, I'm eating three meals a day and a snack or two. Seem to be doing okay. The only logical explanation was that God was doing what He always does, which is as we give off the front end, He makes it up on the back end. And if you really discipline yourself into this posture of giving, you find over and over and over and over and over and over how God provides for you. And the mm-hmm's are people in the room that have tested the Lord in this, which is what He says to do in the book of Malachi and seen it happen and the awkward silence from the rest of you are the ones that aren't giving the Lord a chance you better believe it's a celebration so you remember y'all may remember we had Jack in the ER back in like February we had our deductible <laughs> go figure and so Steph says man it would be so great if we could get pregnant this year but like the time was short there was no way it was going to happen laughed it off. And we've been trying really since we had Jack to have another. And wouldn't you know it, the next month we're pregnant. Guys, this baby's it's not going to be free. <laughs> but, but, you know, by the time we hit our deductible and then we get into January and the new HSA money comes, you know how that works, then, you know, um, we can play that game. That was a celebration in our house. You better believe it's a celebration in our house when medical bills are lower than we think they should be. I, one of the one of my observations in our spiritual family is we are among the lower income bracket in our church, and people I think think we're in the higher income bracket because we travel a lot and we go places. The only explanation I have for that is like even the Lord lets us enjoy good things because of our giving i think i think i mean if you want to know how much I make, it's like written in a document like. It's a celebration in our house when the Lord provides for us over and over and over again. And so this is just my question for you this morning is there is a party happening. There is a party happening of the Lord, of, which is built on testimonies of the Lord's provision. There is a party happening Where we are having a ball, experiencing all that the Lord has as we trust Him and give to Him first. My question for you is what is stopping you from coming to the party? Steph's gonna leave response time.